Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, dear listeners, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a returning guest to talk all things body recomposition. I have with me Chris Barakat. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back on, my man. It's good to see you again. Same, absolutely. I am so excited for this because you've done a lot of work on body recomposition. You wrote a book with Jeff Nippert, The Ultimate Guide to Body Recomposition. You've contributed to a couple of research studies on the topic. So first off, to bring everybody up to speed, um, what is, how would you define body recomposition? Yeah, so the most uh, common definition of that would be when an individual is gaining muscle mass and losing fat mass simultaneously, um, that would be the most traditional form of it. I also consider body recomposition um, like another sector of that can be when somebody gains a lot more lean mass than they do fat mass. Mm-hmm. So their body fat percent still continues to go down, even though they may have not lost actual fat mass. So um, again, the traditional sense, it's losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, can anybody recomp? And this is a broad question, so I'll let you take it away. For the most part, um, everybody is capable of recomp depending on their current, you know, uh, physical environment and what situation they're in. But yes, absolutely, especially when they're beginning their training career. your ability to build muscle obviously you're primed for that your runway to grow muscle tissue is the greatest as a as a novice trainee Um, and then depending on what your body fat levels are um, whether you're average weight or overweight or if you're already very skinny and very lean that's going to impact whether or not you're actually recomping or if you're just building a bunch of muscle um, when you first get started but from a physiological standpoint Yes, we all have the ability to build muscle and we all have the ability to lose fat. So whether or not that happens really depends on your training status, your approach to your training, your nutritional habits, what phase you're in and um, how how experienced you are. But also um, something that people kind of get misunderstood is even if you're an advanced trainee, if you're currently not in your prime, like the last two to three months hasn't been ideal for you, even though you are super advanced, you probably can recomp for the next two to three months as you get back into your training regimen. So uh, just because you've been lifting for five, six, seven, eight, nine years doesn't mean you can't recomp. Now, if you're in the absolute peak uh, condition and you're in the best shape of your life, you're probably not going to recomp in that very moment. 
but the goal of bodybuilders is over time to build more and more muscle tissue to improve their physique from an aesthetic standpoint. And recomposition is kind of something that can happen in an acute sense, whether you want to zoom in on one day, one week, eight weeks, or 16 weeks, or you can kind of really zoom out and say, this entire bodybuilding journey is about recomping to a certain extent. So, you know, uh, in the past, right now I'm around 172, 172 pounds. I used to be mm -hmm. 172 pounds, you know, 10 years ago as well. But this current 172 is a much better 172 than the previous one. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, the entire 10 year thing has been a recomp process. But as you build muscle and as you change your physique over time, uh, that's exactly what you're doing as as a bodybuilding focused uh, athlete. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I always encourage my clients not to pay attention to the number on the scale, because when I have clients who are interested in bodybuilding, whether they compete or not, ultimately, we want to um, return to a previous body weight sometimes. That might be the goal in terms of achieving a certain number, but the look is going to be different because we we spent time purposefully putting on more muscle and losing body fat. So the, the number might be the same, but the composition is very different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something I, I will add to that is I think a lot of people miss, uh, they, they have a false number in their head in regards to what they think mm -hmm. they where they think they will look best at and what they actually want to achieve. Um, I will say for females, generally that number is much lighter than mm -hmm. it needs to be or it should be. So just as an example, uh, let's say you have a 170 pound female. They might say, hey, <clears throat> I would love to get to 140, like long-term goal. But the truth of the matter is, they might love how they look at 155 um, because, again, it's not just about losing 15 pounds of scale weight. They might have stripped off 25 pounds of fat mass and, and added 10 pounds of lean mass, and their entire body composition, their shape, their physique looks a lot more aesthetic. So I would say females generally think they need to weigh less than they actually uh, should or want to. Like the mm -hmm they envision in their mind is associated with a false number. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll, I will say that for females and then it can almost be the opposite for males. Um, yeah. A lot of males might be like, Oh, I want to be 190 pounds, you know, jacked and full and this and that, but maybe you get to 190 pounds and you, you're carrying a lot of body fat. So you actually love how your physique looks at 170, whatever it may be, just as an example. Yeah, and both are an indication of uh, societal messages and how they affect us because most societal messages aimed towards people who identify as women suggest that they should be as small as possible to be aesthetic, as you use that term. Whereas it's the, almost the opposite for uh, people who identify as men. They are told that the bigger they are, the better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then... I won't get too far off topic, but there's a a very different psychological outlook for natural competitors and enhanced competitors. That's a whole other yeah. thing. But I will say, um, I think a lot of people in the fitness space and the body composition space, the physique space, a lot of us do have some sort of body dysmorphia. 
Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen from friends and colleagues that are on both sides of the space, those that are on the that are on the enhanced side, that body dysmorphia is further exaggerated. And just as the physiques that are achieved when utilizing enhancements are more extreme, the body dysmorphia is also more extreme. That is really interesting. For sure, it sure. makes me wonder now I don't want to get out too off topic either yeah. but then it makes me wonder is it the psychology before they started taking PEDs that would make them more prone to um, have exaggerated reactions or is it perhaps as a result of taking PEDs and seeing the results that they're capable of that those reactions become so much more exaggerated to yeah. how their body might change yeah, I'm, this is my opinion, but I think it's a combination of both. Whereas you might see somebody, uh, I'll just use an example, or we could probably use ourselves as an, ex- as an example. When I first started lifting, let's say I was 135 pounds, and I started to notice changes to my physique, I would be comfortable wearing a tank top and starting to show off my muscles in the gym and this and that. And then as I got more in delved into the sport, and I saw what the best of the best actually looked like and how far away I was from that. Um, rather than wearing a tank top, I'm like, oh, I got to put my hoodie on and cover up because I'm so far away. So there's almost like um, mm. extreme spike in confidence when you initially get started. And then once you kind of really put yourself into this industry and that's all you see, you start comparing yourself to more extreme looks and then your psychology in regards to what is average gets very very skewed so yes that's true so random example like i used to think nba players and mma athletes i used to view them when i was younger as being very muscular like they had a good toned muscular physique now i look at those athletes and i'm like do they even lift like they look very small to me (laughs) muscular standpoint but it's because i am constantly seeing the best bodybuilders and that has become a norm to me even though it's 0.0001% of the population so you got to yeah, remind that's me. true yeah also in my experience i found that i used to i i've and i've spoke speaking to other people they seem to have a similar experience as well to where the leaner you get the more skewed your view of what's a lean physique is becomes in that you were very very lean at some point so now anything above that which would be average and would be um within the realm of a healthy body fat range seems to to, seems not lean enough anymore yeah for sure for sure once you reach uh, a certain level and and a more extreme look um the previous healthy slash normal looks no longer as uh, maybe as appealing, but that changes over time and it fluctuates. I think another thing that happens to a lot of people, they get very, very lean. And while they are lean, they don't necessarily appreciate it and they don't think they look that mm-hmm. great. But once they get back to, you know, more of a body fat set point and a healthier yeah. composition, they might look back at photos from three months ago or six months ago and say, wow, I looked amazing. Like I'm, I'm really happy with what I achieved. But unfortunately, they didn't have the opportunity to stop and smell the roses or when they were actually in that moment, they didn't appreciate it as much as they thought they would. So it's a complex, uh, ever evolving and, and multiple pieces to the puzzle going on here. 
Absolutely. And I think it's important that we share this with the listeners as well, because so many people don't realize the cost of getting to a certain level of leanness. Um, And they might think, well, I don't want to compete, so that's not going to happen to me. But actually, um, everybody's point, everybody's body fat range where we are comfortable is different. So you might end up if you if you get really into this uh, body, uh, this physique transformation process, you can dip below where your body fat is um, optimal, let's call it, you may dip below the body fat range within which your body is comfortable, and you get all of these symptoms. And yeah, you're not going to compete, but you're still getting the symptoms. And if you don't know what that might look like, you might not be able to tell that that's actually what you're experiencing and that that physique isn't really sustainable for you. Because again, due to societal messages, often the physiques that are held up as ideal are not physiques that we can actually, that most people can walk around in 24-7. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, back on the topic of body recomposition. So one thing that you made made very clear is that it is easier when you are more of a novice training-wise, but it's so possible when you're more advanced, it's just a little bit more difficult. Now, what other variables make body recomposition easier? You mentioned, for example, your uh, body fat range. So you've mentioned being having carrying a bit more body fat, carrying a bit less body fat. What makes it easier to recomp? For sure. So I like to think of this as a sliding scale. So um, mm. do you put this out as video and audio or just audio? Just audio. Okay. All right. Anyway, so for you and I, for you and I chatting, I like to think of these two variables on a sliding scale. The first variable is how much muscle mass do you have relative to your maximum genetic potential? Mm-hmm. And then the second lever is essentially how much body fat do you currently have or what's your current body fat percent? So if we were to take somebody with a very high level of body fat and a very low level of muscle mass relative to their potential, that individual has the greatest ability to recon because they can gain a bunch of muscle and they can lose a bunch of fat. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the opposite side of that spectrum, if you have somebody who's already been resistance training for five to 10 years, they're close to their genetic potential from a um, muscle mass standpoint, mm-hmm. and they're already lean, their ability to recomp is going to be much uh, smaller. Okay. Um, other things that are going to impact that are going to be what type of training are you actually doing? Like what type of athlete are you? What type of program are you on? Um, mm-hmm. Are you hyper-focused on strength? Are you hyper-focused on functionality? Or are you training with the primary goal being hypertrophy and maximizing muscle growth? Um, and then another thing to consider is, okay, how are you approaching your nutrition? Um, the finer details of nutrition matter more and more when you're trying to optimize outcomes and really maximize how much muscle you can grow and what your body composition looks like. So um, a lot of people in the evidence-based field, I personally feel like they oversimplify very complex topics. Um, you mm-hmm. see, you, especially years years back when like infographics and these very silly like X versus check mark figures yeah. out. Um, I would always share this in a, in a body recomposition lecture that I do. 
I've seen infographics all the time. You want to gain muscle, you have to be in a calorie surplus. You want to lose fat, you need to be in a calorie deficit. And as nice as that sounds, it's actually not true from a physiological standpoint. You can build muscle in a deficit at maintenance or in a surplus, and the literature demonstrates that. So when you take something that's really complex, like human physiology, and you try to just say it's this black and white, you're either anabolic or catabolic, it's just not true. We have phases throughout the day where we're in an anabolic environment, and then we have phases throughout the day where we're in a catabolic environment. I just had a you know, a smoothie that has 40 grams of protein in there. I'm starting to increase muscle protein synthesis. I'm going to be in a more anabolic environment for the next 90 minutes to three hours, whatever it may be. And then after that, I can dip into a catabolic environment. So it's not this black and white thing. Um, mm -hmm. But there are a lot of factors that impact your ability to recomp. And another thing that the research has pointed to uh, is your your sleep hygiene, your sleep practices. Mm. Um, that plays a really big role in your body composition as well as your hormonal profile. So that impacts your insulin sensitivity, how well you tolerate carbohydrates and how you utilize carbohydrates. That impacts your sex hormones like your testosterone levels. Um, that impacts your thyroid health. So all of these things do play a role. It's just to different magnitudes over time. Excellent. Thank you for the very clear answer. Now, you mentioned that the uh, nuances of nutrition are really important when you're trying to recomp. So I want to zoom in on nutrition and break it down into different categories. So first off, how you, you already mentioned that recomp may be possible at different caloric intakes, maintenance, surpluses, and deficits. Now, how would you suggest somebody uh, go about deciding whether they should be at maintenance calories in a deficit or in a surplus to attempt a recomp? Sure. So I would ask them, A, what is their primary goal? Are they mm -hmm. more interested in maximizing the muscle growth or are they more interested in losing body fat? And that's probably mm -hmm. going to be determined based on their current body fat level. Mm. So if, if you have a male that's, let's just say over 18%, they might be more interested in losing body fat from an acute standpoint, maybe for the next mm -hmm. four, eight, 12 weeks, whatever it may be. Um, whereas if you have somebody who is just getting involved in resistance training, maybe they're 14, 15% body fat, um, they're kind of I don't even want to say skinny fat. They're actually kind of lean, but they're also kind of small. They just don't have a lot of muscle. They mm -hmm. should primarily focus on building muscle. So that would irk them towards sides of being in a slight surplus rather than mm -hmm. maintenance or in a deficit. So kind of pick what is the more important goal for you, building muscle or losing fat. And then that can help determine where should the calories be. Um, Another thing that I do with a lot of clients is I set them up at theoretical maintenance for the mm -hmm. first four, six, eight weeks of us working together. And I just observe what happens to their physique, what happens mm -hmm. to their scale weight, and what happens to their training performance. A lot of times, especially when I'm working with Gen Pop, their scale weight might stay almost exactly the same, you know, fluctuates two to five pounds here and there. However, I also take waist circumference measurements. We take progress photos. We see that waist circumference measurement is going down bi-weekly every single month. We know that they're losing body fat. Mm 
even though their scale weight's not moving. So as long as you're utilizing more tools in your toolbox that you can communicate to the client or you as the individual can have that positive reinforcement that, hey, things are still going in the right direction, it allows them to practice patience and stay in that current nutritional phase. Whereas if you're not taking a waist circumference measurement, you're not taking standardized progress photos, if you see the scale weights not going down, you get discouraged and you no longer want to stick to the plan. Another thing that is very problematic with less advanced trainees, more of that gen pop clientele, even if their goal is fat loss, right? If you put them in a calorie deficit right from the start, their hunger levels are going to be higher, even if they're on a higher protein diet. Um, their energy levels aren't going to be as good. Their performance and recovery is going to be hindered. So you're putting them in an environment where adhering to the plan is going to be more difficult. So the sustainability aspect isn't, it, it requires discipline no matter what phase you're in, you still need to execute the plan, but mm -hmm. you're stacking cards against yourself rather than for yourself. So again, I don't like putting people in a deficit right off the bat, even if their goal is fat loss. I say, hey, mm -hmm. let, let's focus on improving certain dietary habits. Let's focus on improving uh, our consistency in the gym, our execution, our intensity, and let's see how you respond. And literally like nine out of 10 times, very, very good things happen without putting them in a deficit. And the feedback I usually get is it's actually really hard for me to eat all of this food, even though their body weight's not going up and they're in maintenance. Why is mm -hmm. that? Because we started to shift an individual that was eating um, a good amount of processed food and not that much whole food to eating a lot more whole foods, making sure they're getting, you know, three servings of veggies per day, two servings of fruit per day. So their fiber intake is higher. Their micronutrient intake is much better and their protein intake is higher. So their satiety is much better and you're just providing your body not only with the appropriate macronutrients, but also more micronutrients to help support all these different metabolic pathways. Um, so, yeah, I just see that all the time. A lot of magical things can happen at caloric maintenance for most people out there. You know, the average person you see at the gym. If they just improve their diet at theoretical maintenance while implementing a progressive resistance training program, their body will um, adapt in a very positive manner. And you most likely will see some sort of recomposition effect take place. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I actually take a very similar approach with the majority of clients, especially the um, newer ones or, well, all new clients that start working with me. But when I say newer, I mean more beginner type, novice type clients. And I mainly work with Gen Pop as well. And um, I always take this approach. I used to call it a kickstart phase. More recently, I've been calling it a fat loss primer if their main goal is fat loss or a muscle gain primer if their main goal is muscle gain, where I basically explain to them, I'm going to take you through uh, this phase to give you all of the tools that you need to accomplish fat loss and muscle gain in a surplus or in a deficit 
whichever might be the goal that you have. So we put in place a meal structure that they might not have had before. We improve the diet quality that, as you said, and also importantly, the majority of them aren't, even if they were trained before working with me, they're not trained with the intensity that's necessary to optimize muscle growth. So just by putting in place a meal structure, better diet quality and the right training intensity and technique, I also didn't, um, back in the day, I didn't take pictures and measurements um, more than once a month. But now with the new starters, the clients who just start out, I actually do it every week because sometimes the changes are so quick that you can see them on a weekly basis, even at what you call theoretical maintenance. Absolutely. Yeah. The changes that can happen in one to two weeks is astonishing. You know, um, before we started recording, we were talking about a lot of people having, you know, uh, gut health issues. Sometimes a weight circumference can go down two, three inches right off the bat. It's not going to be like pure body fat, but now they mm -hmm. have less gut distension. They're not as bloated. Mm -hmm. uh, they're retaining less water in that area. And you can see <clears throat> really significant improvements in a short period of time, despite the scale weight, maybe not moving too much. So yeah, that's awesome to hear that you implement a, a kind of similar strategy. And again, I think too many people in the industry have tried to oversimplify nutrition into this very black and white, highly objective thing. Oh, all that matters is that you hit your numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, no, not, not really. You know, if I have somebody eating 160 grams of protein per day, I think they're going to be way better off having four meals at 40 grams of protein mm -hmm. rather than two meals at 80 grams of protein, just as an example. Um, from a muscle building standpoint and a fat loss standpoint, you know, I understand the laws of thermodynamics. I understand all of that, but our bodies are not a simple, uh, addition and subtraction formula. We're very, very, very complex. You know, there's a difference between 30 grams of carbs from sweet potato and 30 grams of carbs from Gatorade, right? So mm -hmm. the thermic effect of food between those two things, even though the caloric intake is theoretically the same, in our body it's not. We're going to burn a lot more energy digesting the 30 grams of carbs from a sweet potato compared to 30 grams of carbs from dextrose or Gatorade, whatever it is, right? So now don't get me wrong. I think some people hyper-focus on these details when they don't even have the big rocks in place. But then mm -hmm. there are so many people who just uh, think the big rocks are all that matter when mm -hmm. that's also not the case. So, you know, you need to take a smart approach when it comes to this stuff. I agree. I think that also a uh, an issue that may arise with the oversimplification of the two goals, if you want to build muscle, be in a surplus, and if you want to lose fat, be in a deficit, is that then maintenance becomes synonymous with stagnation, which is something I've been actually really emphasizing recently when I talk to anybody. I will call it calorie maintenance and i would emphasize that we're only aiming to maintain the body fat stores either unchanged or they might go down if there's recomp happening and muscle mass is actually going to increase because you're going to build muscle it, the training is the main driver of uh, of muscle growth so even if you are a technical calorie maintenance yep. your muscle mass is still going to increase yeah yeah of course and there's a great paper by Slater and colleagues, and uh, mm -hmm. it's titled something along the lines of 
is a caloric surplus necessary to maximize? Yeah, I read that one. Okay, great paper. Um, and again, at the end of the day, the progressive resistance training is going to provide that signal and that stimulus for muscle growth. And as long as protein intake is high enough and you can be in a positive nitrogen balance, you can continue to grow muscle. So, yeah, it's, uh, again, the oversimplification just drives me nuts, especially when I hear it coming from people with um, very well-respected credentials that kind of should know better, um, but maybe the the sound bites and the more clickbaity black and white stuff is still something they kind of fall into. I understand. I can tell that you're riled up, but that's when the conversation gets really interesting. So I'm glad that you share that. Now, we mentioned diet quality and its importance. Let's talk about the macronutrients. Which one is the most important if there is one for body recomp? Yeah. So when I set up an individual's diet, I always set up protein first and I'll give you, mm-hmm. I'll give the listeners um, exactly what I do to determine that. So I also program protein based on this sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, that range of protein intake for me is 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass, not total body weight. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do some quick calculations. Let's say I have a 200 pound male at 20% body fat. That means that individual has uh, 160 pounds of fat-free mass or lean mass. Mm-hmm. I would put that individual at maybe 190 grams of protein, okay, Um, which is pretty darn high, you know, compared to most people, I would say. Um, But if this is for those that are trying to maximize recomposition, Mm -hmm. at bare minimum, if I have a client who comes to me and their protein intake was super low before starting with me, I'm not just going to double their protein intake overnight. Mm -hmm. It's silly to do that. So for me, my bare minimum is honestly that one gram per pound of lean mass. So for that 200 pound male at 20% body fat, I would like to set them at a very minimum of 160 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as their resistance training progresses over time, I'll I'll try to walk that up. Um, But my range is 1.2 to 1.6. And then it alters based on your body fat level. So the more body fat you have, the closer to 1.2 you can be, the mm-hmm. less body fat you have, the closer to 1.6 you can be. Um, so I set that up first. That's the first macronutrient I set up. And then the second macronutrient I set up is fats, right? Um, obviously, basically everyone listening to this, unless they're on a ketogenic diet, utilizes glucose as their primary fuel source. However, if we want to get technical, proteins and fats are essential. and then Carbohydrates technically aren't. So mm-hmm. I like to set up proteins first, fats second. And my fats generally range between 20% of their total calories up to 35% of their total calories. And the way I program that is based on preferences and body fat levels. So we know that if somebody does have a high level of body fat, they are more likely to have some sort of insulin resistance or some issues with, you know, blood glucose utilization or carbohydrate utilization. So maybe their fasting blood glucose, blood glucose levels are a bit higher. Uh, maybe they're even pre-diabetic. So for those individuals, I might set their fat intake at 
closer to 35% of their total calories. Mm-hmm. Then the rest of their calories that they need to hit their caloric goal, whether that was maintenance deficit or surplus, is going to be filled in via carbohydrate. Um, now, on the other side of the spectrum, if I have a leaner individual or somebody who is very physically active, mm-hmm. I might have their fats as low as 20% of their total caloric intake. Therefore, a larger percentage of their calories is coming from carbohydrate because if they are physically active and they're, they're constantly contracting muscle, even if it's as simple as walking, um, they're utilizing glucose uh, more efficiently on a more regular basis so they can handle mm-hmm. it better. And then obviously preference is really important. So if somebody just loves fattier foods in their diet, they love whole eggs, they love bacon, they love 80-20 beef, maybe you shift it up there. Um, if somebody loves you know, white rice and breads and cereals and they don't really care for fattier foods, then you put their fats lower and you have their carbs higher. So the most important thing is going to be protein. Fats and carbs can vary, but when I'm trying to optimize things, that's the approach that I take. Very interesting. Thank you. What about nutrient timing? Is that important to you? And how do you uh, set it up for a client? Yeah, um, it's very important to me. Um, Context is super dependent too. So again, am I working with a gen pop client that is going to basically make progress regardless because they're so new to this? Um, It's not as important uh, compared to if I'm working with like a physique athlete that's going to be competing. But I do um, like to have a minimum of three protein feedings per day and Mm -hmm. a maximum of six protein feedings per day. I would say most of my clients eat four to five meals per day. Me personally, um, I basically need to eat five or six meals per day Mm -hmm. when I'm in my surplus and my gaining phase. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't have four very, very big meals and, and just feel good and function good. My energy mm-hmm. levels will be lower. My appetite is terrible. Um, so I need to have smaller, more frequent meals when I'm in a surplus. Now, interestingly, when I'm dieting, I often decrease my meal frequency to four meals per day. So I can have larger meals and not feel as hungry and the diet feels a lot easier. So I kind of manipulate meal frequency based on that. Um, and then when it comes to nutrient timing in terms of like pre-workout, uh, intra-workout, post-workout, that is super important for me as well. Um, and I do focus on that, but it's very context dependent. So some clients like to train fast at first thing in the morning because it fits their schedule. Cool. I let that be. I don't say you have to have a pre-workout meal, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it depends on their lifestyle, their schedule and everything like that. But we can dive into some of the pre-workout post-workout stuff if you wanted to. Absolutely. I would be very interested if you could. Yeah, for sure. So again, if we're, if we're crossing all T's and dotting all I's, um, pre-workout meals generally for me are going to be lower glycemic carbohydrates. Um, it can be something like sweet potato. It can be something like oats. Um, it's usually going to utilize multiple transportable carbs, which Mm -hmm. is in simple terms, you're going to have a starchy carbohydrate source as well as a fruit source. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is that starchy carbohydrate source is going to be broken down and digested into glucose molecules. Mm-hmm. And any sort of fruit source that you have is going to have a combination of fructose and glucose. And our bodies have different transport pathways 
to utilize those different carbohydrates. So it makes the digestion process a little bit easier and it makes the utilization of those carbohydrates a bit easier. So an analogy I love to use to explain why multiple transportable carbs can be important. Let's say you're in an auditorium and you have 80 people in that auditorium. Um, and we're going to say each person is one gram of carbohydrate. Now, if each individual is coming from a starchy carbohydrate and it's going to be broken down into glucose, all 80 people can only exit through one door. Mm -hmm. So if the fire alarm goes off and we want to get all 80 people out of there as quickly as possible, all 80 people need to kind of streamline down one, down one hall into out, out one door. Whereas if we utilize multiple transportable carbs and we still have 80 people there, we can say that 50 of them, uh, or let's say 60 of them are, you know, a starchy carb and going to be broken down into glucose. And then the other 20 grams are coming from fructose from a fruit source. Mm -hmm. Now we open two doors. So 60 people can leave out one door and 20 people can leave out the other door. That's how you can kind of visualize the digestion and utilization of those mm -hmm. carbohydrates and it makes that process a bit more efficient so again pre-workout i like that approach low glycemic carbs multiple transportable carbs and then for quantity generally speaking i like one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight so if you mm -hmm. weigh if you weigh 60 kilos you're going to eat approximately 60 grams of carbs if you weigh 80 kilos approximately 80 grams of carbs this can vary depending on what's their total calorie intake, how much is their total carbohydrate intake, so on and so forth. However, even if somebody is in a deficit and their carbohydrates get lower and lower and lower for the entire day, I personally still like to keep my pre-workout and post-workout meal almost unchanged mm -hmm. and just reduce the amount of carbohydrate or potentially completely omit carbohydrates from meals furthest away from the, the workout window, the training window. So that's a, a basic intro into like pre-workout. Um, all of my meals have a sufficient enough, uh, a sufficient amount of protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis to a very mm -hmm. large degree. So again, that can range from anywhere as low as 20 to 25 grams to as high as 50 to 60 grams depending on the size of the individual. So am I working with a small female or a very, very large muscular male? That's going to impact the protein in there. And then fats is going to vary based on how far away is the workout window. Uh, mm -hmm. Am I training in 60 minutes or am I training in two hours? The further away my workout session is, the more fat I can put in that meal to slow down the digestion and the absorption of those nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm really close to the workout window, I'm going to keep the fats low. And then post-workout, dive into that if that's cool with you. Yes. Um, post-workout is similar, but rather than using low glycemic carbs, I use high glycemic carbs. So that can be something like a rice cereal or a cream of rice or a regular white rice. Something that's going to digest really, really fast. Um, and it's really, really easy and light on the stomach. So mm -hmm. I like utilizing a higher glycemic carbohydrate there. I still utilize just about one gram of carb per kilogram of body weight. Um, if somebody's in a surplus and they're eating a ton of carbs every day, I can have that even higher for their post-workout. Mm -hmm. 
And then protein is going to be really similar. Um, you know, depending on the size of the individual, it's going to be a, a sufficient bolus to really maximize NPS. And then fats are going to be lower post-workout the mm-hmm. majority of the time. Now, let's just say I have a client that trains at 6 p.m. and they work a regular 9 to 5. Maybe their uh, 7.30, 8 p.m. meal is going to be much higher in fat as well. And it's kind of just going to be their nightcap. It's their final big meal of the day. Uh, it has a good amount of fat, a lot of carbs, a lot of protein. And then that's their final meal of the day. So it's very context dependent. But um, if they're eating more meals after that because they train earlier on in the day, it's going to be lower in, in fat. Just so those carbohydrates and that protein can be digested and absorbed uh, a, a lot faster. And those nutrients can reach the blood plasma and reach the muscle tissue at a faster rate. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for diving into those aspects. I found it. I think uh, it's not been covered before in the podcast. Um, so I think that will be really, really interesting. And then I think the last question we have time for that would be interesting to dive interesting to dive into is realistic expectations. So how long does a body recomposition phase take? Great question. Um, this is going to vary again, person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, sometimes you see visual changes in one to two weeks. Now, the magnitude of that change is going to vary. Um, I would say people should give themselves at least six weeks, but in ideal circumstances, eight to 16 weeks, so like two to four months, right? But mm-hmm. you will you will see your body change in a month's time, especially if you're utilizing um, the other metrics and these other tools like a waist circumference and progress photos and stuff like that. Um, Another thing to mention is if you're tracking your training and you notice that you're adding load or you're adding reps and your form is getting better, if you're getting stronger, there is absolutely a huge neurological component to that especially for the nor the more novice lifters it's not purely about adding size and actually gaining muscle there's a skill mm-hmm. component there but if you're progressing in the gym it's a great sign that you're adding some amount of muscle tissue so um yeah you you want to be patient with yourself but you should see some sort of progress in just four weeks time if you're you know crossing those t's and dotting those i's and you're moving in the right direction you'll see that progress I will say you should give yourself realistically closer to a minimum of eight weeks. Um, and then if you give yourself 16 plus weeks, the change is just going to be larger. So mm-hmm. I think of a lot of clients that I've worked with and their transformation photos. I mean, yeah, I've seen very, very impressive recomps in six to eight weeks time. Um, but the magnitude of recomp is very, very different from person to person. And it will depend on all the variables that we've talked about, how where your body fat is at, uh, but also uh, how, what's your training experience, how's your sleep, um, have you already been th- crossing those T's and dotting those I's for a long period of time beforehand? Because if you have, then the magnitude of recomp is going to be smaller, as opposed to somebody who's just starting out and they start getting very granular about all of this, whereas before they weren't, then they're going to see a massive transformation. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a huge genetic component. So Mm -hmm. the same way that 
some people just have the ability to build more muscle, mm-hmm. those people have a greater ability to recomp because that's yeah. one uh, component to the equation of recomp is the muscle building aspect. So just like everybody responds differently to resistance training and the muscle mm-hmm. building, that's a huge variable that you can't even guess just by assessing someone's previous experience level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you will see the changes in magnitude based on individual differences over time. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of that, then say that somebody um, doesn't see much of a uh, body recomp in this phase. Now, uh, would you, for example, I'm going to uh, create an actual potential scenario here. So I've heard it before where some people would suggest, okay, if you want to recomp, you can either stay at theoretical maintenance, or if your goal is primarily muscle growth, you can get into a slight surplus. Or if your goal is primarily fat loss, then you can get into a slight deficit. Now, let's say that somebody takes this approach where they're close to maintenance, but either in a small surplus or a small deficit, and they don't see that much of a recomp. Would you then, what would you then say could be changed? Would you say, well, at this point, then it would be better if you tried a bigger deficit or a bigger surplus? What would you do? Yes. So if the person's primary goal is fat loss, let's increase the magnitude of the deficit mm-hmm. to make sure that the needle is moving in the right direction at a faster rate. So if you were previously in a 150, 200 calorie deficit, maybe you increase that to a 300 or 400 calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, that will get the ball rolling faster. Now, if the thing that's interesting about muscle gain is it seems like the magnitude of the surplus doesn't necessarily dictate the magnitude of the muscle that is being added. Mm-hmm. However, I will say if you are more of that novice trainee, you're pretty young in terms of your age, this is all relatively new to you. I personally lead towards larger surpluses. Um, and I do think that serves people a bit better. It, it enhances their recovery. It enhances their gym performance, especially if your appetite is there and you're a young trainee and like, you know, you haven't put on that first 20 plus pounds of muscle that mm-hmm. most people can. Um, you probably want to increase the magnitude of the surplus. So you're kind of not spinning your wheels too much and feel like you're staying in that same place. That's I something. Also- Oh, that's sorry, something that's something that I did when I was way younger. So when I was like 17, 18 years of age, I was resistance training five plus days a week, but mm-hmm. I simply wasn't eating enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely was hindering my muscle building potential. And then my first competition ever, I was only 140 pounds on stage. And that's when I started to learn more about nutrition and how to train properly. I put on 14 pounds of stage weight, which was basically pure muscle in just like 16 months time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because I really started pushing my calories and, and I drove that surplus home while progressing in the gym. So, um, I spun my wheels a bunch when I first got started and that's what made me fall in love with learning more about the training and the nutrition was I didn't feel like I was making the amount of progress that I should given the amount of effort I was putting in. I actually ended up in a very similar position as well, because if you remember the last time we talked, I shared that I had an eating disorder and a restrictive one at that. And uh, for that reason, I was uh, also, I tend to 
well, left to my own devices, if I don't, if I'm not very disciplined, then I tend to undereat and uh, overexercise. And uh, I still have those tendencies, even though I'm recovered from the eating disorder. So when I started bodybuilding, I also ended up in that position where I was doing a lot of training consistently and I simply wasn't fueling it well enough. Or I wasn't, even when I was committing to a calorie surplus, I wasn't doing that for a long enough time to get the results that I should have for the amount of effort I was putting in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's frustrating, well, but that's what kind of leads us to asking more questions and, and diving into, hey, let me find a better answer and a better approach. So um, I feel like the efforts that we're putting in are actually um, we're, we're, we're getting the rewards that we're kind of seeking from our efforts over time. And if anything, I always think about it this way, you know, for every mistake I make, I, I become a better coach because then I seek more answers. And then my clients, when they go through the same process, I can guide them to avoid the mistakes that I did make. 100%. All right. Well, uh, Chris, I know that we're up on time and uh, that you are a very busy man. So I really appreciate that you took time today for this episode. I thought it was really, really interesting. And I think it will be very enlightening for a lot of people. But before we go, why don't you tell people where they can find you? And if you have anything that you're working on that you've already shared that you want to plug, this is your time. I'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So if you guys want to reach out, you can find me at schoolofgains.com and gains is spelled with a Z. Um, mm -hmm. On there, there is a free blog article that talks about recomposition. So you guys can check that out. And then if you're interested in a nutritional ebook resource you mentioned earlier on in this um jeff nippert and i collaborated on an ebook that is called the ultimate guide to body recomposition and that is also sold on schoolofgains.com um last time we spoke i set up a coupon code for the mm -hmm. fit to transform listeners so you guys can use code ftt for 20 percent off whether it's that ebook or any programs you see online um, but yeah, definitely check out the free resources. If you really want a step-by-step -step guide on setting up your diet for recomposition, definitely check out the ultimate guide to body recomp. And, um, in terms of things I'm working on, I mean, in the new year, there's going to be a webinar that I'm working on with three other colleagues. One of them's Alan Aragon. The other one is Dasha and the other one is Dr. Casey Joe. Oh, like the one we had this year. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing another one like that um, in most likely January. And then um, I'm also working on a peak week program to come out down the road in 2024. So you guys can kind of stay tuned for that. But yeah, um, feel free to reach out again through the website or even on Instagram. It's just my full name at Christopher.Barricat. And uh, I think that that basically does it all. Excellent. I'll make sure that everything is in the show notes. I'll be looking forward to the webinar because the one we had this year was amazing, Chris. Thank and you. Um, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in as always and for gifting both me and Chris with some of your time. And uh, until the next episode. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast, and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.